Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Savior Custom Drums, quality crafted drums handmade in Denver, Colorado. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. So what are you guys doing right now, other than playing with your junk? Playing with <laughs> playing with my sh- with my schnauzen, with my what else with, would you be doing? With my big shanze. Uh, I don't know. I like to think of interesting names for penis. But uh, no, I'm about to mix this really cool band from France called Hypnos. Uh, they're one of those bands that's I think better known in Europe than here. Like they do lots of cool tours, and they sound like Mr. Bungle meets Gojira meets Opeth meets Meshuga. Whoa! So yeah, it's it's a cool it's a cool collection of things. So they're coming here. We're gonna track some drums and then mix it. So they have everything else recorded, and apparently their drummer is a beast. And I really really like them, so that should be cool. I want to hear that. Yeah, it's it'll be cool. It'll definitely be cool. Hell yeah! I am doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, actually I've got a nice little break and I'm just kind of putting some of my energy towards you know new plugins and I'm working on a new amp sim right now and uh, working on some stuff for Drumforge and just you know doing cool stuff like that I've got a lot of bands coming in 2015 but uh, and I got one more band here at the end of, of this year I'm, I'm working on the Conquer Divide record that's coming out on Artery Recordings. Uh, I have no idea when it'll come out, but we're recording it in a month. So, Well, I'm just working on some 90s rock this week. I got two bands that are kind of um, in the in that genre, except one of them is mixed really modern and really like heavy and huge, and the other one is mixed like a Pearl Jam record. So um, nothing too exciting in terms of like I'm working on some really awesome, crazy, high-budget record or anything, but no, I'm working with two pretty cool bands and just making some 90s rock so i actually I, you sent me uh one of the early mixes and i listened to it, it was pretty cool like um i i'm always fascinated by older recordings like d- didn't you say one of them was recorded like back in the 90s yeah that one that was a little bit the one that wasn't heavy that drum mix the whole drum set and all that stuff was cut back in 92 so the band was on like a development deal for emi but they broke up and then what ended up happening is you know 20 years later the guy's got the masters now and he decided that he wanted to have it mixed so he called me up and i was like yeah let's you know let's do this so um all that stuff was tracked back to tape and what's really amazing and cool about that those tracks is like everything is already committed. So like there's already like a limiter on the snare and the bass drums already compressed and EQ'd. And like, I literally just threw up the faders and I'm like, Holy shit, this is like mixed. Like I hardly have to even do anything. Yeah. That's uh, I mean, shit, the more time you spend on the fucking engineering, <laughs> the better the mix is going to be. Isn't that Back a big when shock? people used to care about engineering? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really, really sad to me how, much the whole producing engineering thing has taken a backseat to mixing. Uh, I feel like people have it backwards now. I mean, I sure like you can spend forever on a mix, but it's so much easier and it's so much better and so much more rewarding also as a mixer to be working on tracks that are well recorded uh, and having that phenomenon where the song mixes itself or things just come together that that's only really possible i feel like if things are recorded well 
it's almost like you're not you feel like you're not even doing anything because you're like, wow, this sounds great. Why'd you guys hire me? I'm used to just absolutely <laughs> saving a disaster from occurring and trying to like make things that sound like crap sound not like crap and you know get a good mix out of it. I'm not used to like, oh my God, these tracks sound amazing. Uh how am I gonna make this sound better? I'll just add like a little bit of EQ and just some you know, a good two bus chain run and it's done. <laughs> so but see, I, I think that's how it should be though. Like agreed. Absolutely. Uh, mix a mixing engineer. I mean, the word mix itself is like blending. Like you should be making all of the separate parts of the recording work together, not reamping guitars, not replacing drums, not fucking tuning vocals. <laughs> like when did all this shit happen? Like when did all this change? Duh. <laughs> When the DAW came out? <laughs> yeah, when computers came in into the picture. I think it changed when bands decided to start recording themselves way too much. I, I think that's when it really became crazy. Because there was a while when DAWs existed when bands still didn't uh, have a producer in every lineup, you know? Like now yeah. every band has some dude who's a producer or some guy who is starting a studio back home that just kind of, you know, wants to look over your shoulder and steal everything. <laughs> uh, th that, that guy now records his own band every time. And uh, that's, I feel like when that became a thing, that's when the quality of the tracks that... I was getting from other places really started to go downhill. I think it's important to realize that the more time spent on the production and on the engineering is is going to directly affect how easy the mix... I mean, obviously it's going to directly affect how easy the mix is going to be, but it also is going to make your final product come together more easily. Like, um, one thing I've noticed with a lot of the work that I've been getting or doing is it involves a lot of reamping and a lot of drum replacement. And then you send that mix out and what happens is the band is like, well, we don't like this snare. And I'm like, well, yeah, but the snare you sent to me is, is garbage and I'm sure you don't <laughs> like it either. So what do you want me to do? Like, I'm just have to, I have to come up with a snare sound out of nowhere for you. And I'm basically guessing what I want. And then or what you want. And then I'll send them, you know, I'll say, Hey, can you guys give me like some examples of, of what you're looking for? And of course they give me like, Oh, we want the snare to sound like Slipknot, but their song has, has no resemblance of Slipknot whatsoever. And having a snare like that in the song would make no sense. So you just kind of throw your arms up in the air. And, and I really wish that people would pay a lot more attention to what they're doing in the studio and try not to leave so much of it to be fixed in the mix. You know what this really boils down to at the core is the importance of fundamentals when learning how to do things. And I, this is something I'm really passionate about and I think about a lot and that irritates the hell out of me is it's really, I, w I would say very often a lot of people really want to skip over the fundamentals because let's be honest, you know, it's like picking up a guitar and learning to play a couple of power chords and learning to strum correctly. It, it isn't very cool. You know, you don't feel good about doing that. You want to grab the guitar and like, look, I can sweep on day three and impress your friends. It's the same thing with engineering. Everybody wants to come in and, oh yeah, man, I use like, I molt my bass into 72 different parts and use 86 different compressors on every single one of those 72 parts and have it all this parallel. And they use all these really 
really advanced techniques. And then you listen to the kids mix and you're like, it sounds like you started mixing last week. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, you know, sometimes when I've had the, the luck and the, um, the fortune to sit on some A-list guys mixing and just watch them. It's like, you'll be like, what do you got going on in bass? And they'll be like, uh, board EQ and a little bit of board compression. And that's it. I'm like, that's it. They're like, that's it. I'm like, it sounds incredible. So really just getting the fundamentals down. And I mean, with anything, engineering, you know, um, editing, things like that, mixing before you start doing crazy techniques, it usually saves you a lot of trouble downstream and makes for a much better product in the end. I can echo that on guitar from my own experience. Last year, I had to do some songwriting for a very, very huge artist. And I had to impersonate their lead guitar player who's got a very, let's say, distinct style. Everybody knows this guy. And it's pentatonic blues-based stuff. And that's not anything that I ever really learned as a guitar player. Anyone that knows me knows that I don't do that stuff. So, and I hadn't played for about a year. <laughs> so I decided to start taking lessons. Yeah, it was kind of scary because it was like, can you do this at for something that's arena level um, without having played guitar in a year in a style that you don't play? <laughs> so I got three guitar teachers and I decided I was going to go back to basics, learn my pentatonic scales from the ground up and learn, you know, just learn the blues rock thing. And I'd say that after about three weeks of practicing beginner level stuff for, you know, six hours a day, I was actually better than than I was before a guitar. You know, when I was at the height of my playing um, compared to last year, I think I was actually better last year. And it came from working on the basics. And I can tell you that as far as mixing and engineering goes, if I ever get into these kicks where I'm like, I'm going to get better, and I start doing, you know, spending an hour a day or something, just learning new things about mixing or recording, the times that I make the most progress are when I work on basic things, really basic things like hearing EQ better, uh, mastering compression just a little more that that kind of stuff gives me way it pays way better dividends than trying to figure out the math on a convolution reverb or something yeah there's like a macho thing associated with like you know using really fancy algorithms like i have 20 plugins on my base and I, why you know i mean i don't know about you guys but i'm kind of like a minimalist mixer i mean i feel like at least for me having like a really good sounding rig that does a lot of the heavy lifting where you've optimized all of the gain structures you know whether you're doing we're talking itb or otb uh really doesn't matter you know but like i said having a really good rig and set up routing and chains, itb <laughs> you know getting getting a, a setup that is going to sound good right off the bat you know for you've got everything bust correctly and it's all gain structured properly and then it's, you know, if you've done that correctly, you don't need a bunch of fancy, flashy, crazy processes most of the time to get really good sounding mixes. I mean, I mix pretty minimalist. Sometimes it's just basic EQ compression and balance. It, it's all it needs. Yeah. One one thing I hear um, constantly, like people ask, you know, how do you get big toms or how do you make vocals sit in the mix? Well, the answer is not simple because it involves knowing some fundamentals. Um, you know, big toms come from having a clear signal and having a, the t 
the drum tuned correctly and having the mic in the right spot and using the right pre and then processing it a certain way. Um, and it also depends on the key of the song and, you know, what kind of, you know, are the guitars playing at really low tuning and are they going to be fighting with the low end of the toms and all that kind of stuff comes into play. So um, I like that we're stressing the 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 fundamentals for sure. Yeah, well, I think that the problem with getting away from the fundamentals is that people lose sight of what they're doing. And for instance, I've had people come in and show me their mixes and they'll have like seven EQs on a guitar. And I understand having seven plugins on a guitar if they all make a bit of difference or if it's like, you know, minus two dB somewhere here and then a little bit of compression and then a, a tiny bit of EQ and you're making your EQ changes over the course of many plugins with a few different processes. That makes sense. And that's some advanced stuff. However, what I'm talking about are massive EQ changes and someone can't get it right the first time. So they add another EQ to correct their yeah, previous yeah, EQ and then they still, still not quite right. So maybe <laughs> if I add this EQ that I saw in Pensado's place, maybe that'll change it because some guest likes the Poltec and that didn't quite do it. So we'll add another EQ. I'm sure you've seen that. And then that, you go full circle and you're like, ah, it sounds like shit. And you turn everything off and you're like, wow, the raw sounds better than the mixed. And you restart and you go through the same process two or three more times. <laughs> or, yeah. yeah. Or just go back to the, the tone and fucking work on your tone. And then Sometimes it's not even the tone, it's the playing. If the playing is bad, the tone's going to sound like shit. Yeah, that's um, that's a funny one. It's, uh, this came up on my Creative Live forum, actually. Somebody was asking about if their pickups... I mean, if the, if the guitar needed a new battery, and they posted a clip, and it was obviously a dead battery. And want to know something funny? I have a funny story about this. I was mixing a single for a band that's actually pretty big, and they recorded it themselves with their idiot friend. <laughs> and I know this because their idiot friend recorded something else I was involved in uh, mixing a year before that. And that's that's a dude who I mailed a kick pad to who didn't didn't understand how to mic it up. But anyways, this... Uh, <laughs> Did he put a mic in front of a kick pad? Yeah, he was like, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with this kick pad you sent us. It sounds kind of weird under the microphone. <laughs> so yeah, that's the guy who recorded them a year later. Oh, fuck. Okay, so I'm working on it. There's like 180 tracks in this song. It's crazy. And I was trying to get guitar tone. And something's wrong. Like, it just sounds like shit. And I decided I'm going to listen to these DIs. And it's obviously a dead battery. It's like, okay, they sent me a song with a dead battery. This sucks. Um, so I hit them up and I'm like, I think there's something wrong. I think the batteries are dead on the rhythms. It, I, it's I'm driving myself crazy with this. But I think that... I think that the battery's dead. And then the answer was, that's impossible. The guitars don't have active pickups. So I had no idea what to do. And I feel like ultimately the guitar tone really sucked because 
how I didn't know what I honestly didn't know how to fix it because they swore up and down that the guitars were passive. So that was always a big bummer to me. Fast forward to a year later where they're doing an album with somebody and it turns out that they did six songs with that guitar with the dead battery uh, before the producer realized that the battery was dead and made them redo all six of the songs. So their guitar player hit me up and he was like, hey, dude, you're in the clear. Uh, we gave you we gave you tracks with the dead battery. <laughs> oh my gosh I, how long was that a year later yeah this this whole thing yeah so i did that song like a year and a half ago and then a year later them they were working on an album with somebody and they they were like you're in the clear bro it wasn't you <laughs> <laughs> now you can go to bed at night knowing that you haven't you haven't screwed up so well man it was it was really traumatic because i really wanted to do a great job i was going to ask them to retrack it but it, it, since they said that the guitars were passive I, I, you know, I, then I figured it was my fault or something like you had to take their word for it or the guitar players had absolute shit pick attack and didn't know how to pick a string. Uh, but that's it. not the case. That's not the case. The, the really great guitar player in this band. Um, that's, that was the thing. Guitar player is fantastic. One of the best. And he's one of those guys where you just put his DI through any tone and it's going to sound good just because he it's him playing so that's why this was kind of a traumatic thing but yeah just to take it back to joey what you said that sometimes it's the tone sometimes it's the di i mean if the di is not straight you're not going to get a good tone no matter what you do and then all the mix settings in the world are not going to save you yeah so. this goes along with a question we have here from chandler hayden he says I'm wondering if there are any tips to get note definition on guitars Play to be better. a little more vibrant. Pick Play harder, better. use thicker strings, and when you're recording, absolutely break it down into like micro sections to get the best pick attack for every part of the riff. Well, here's what he says. He, he say, other than saying new strings playing style, strictly post-production or creative EQ or plugins. Here's the problem, Chandler, is that you're, you are uh, narrowing your question to you don't understand that it is from better playing. It is from uh, new strings. Uh, it is in the hands. It's in the guitar. Um, just like what Al said, that that guitar player is so good that it wouldn't matter what Tony played through. Um, Here's a good example. Um, I I personally have had many times, and I'm sure you guys can attest to this. Where you know, let's say you have two different bands back to back, right? And they're like the same band, you know, same style, same genre, same kind of riff. They come in with like the exact same guitar, you know, and you plug into the same rig in a blind shootout, and they're like, I like that one. So you end up with the exact same guitar rig, say two weeks in a row with two different bands, and this has happened to me multiple times. And one guitar player from one band sounds freaking amazing. Just the tone blows your mind. The next guitar player, where you've got the same EQ settings, the same guitar, the same pickups, etc., picks up the guitar and the guitar tone sounds like absolute dog shit. And you're sitting there scratching your head. You're like, what the hell is going on? It's the same freaking tone, but the difference is the pick attack and the way the guy's hitting the string is completely different. And th this is actually, uh, you know, I'm going to throw in a shameless plug here, but this is why these boot camps that I'm throwing and that Joey's coming in to uh, help out on 
it, these this is part of what's so good about them and why they help people out. They actually get to hear what it means to have a tight guitar performance because I feel like that guy asking you the question um, about anything besides the playing probably doesn't understand what we actually mean by tight playing and in tune playing. That's what I've noticed is the guys who typically want don't want to hear that answer typically don't know how to actually play well enough to make this happen. Or they don't have an ear for it. That's one thing I've noticed is like you can show someone a riff and, the, and ask them, okay, was that riff played really well? And nine times out of ten, they'll say, uh, yeah, sounds really good to me, but <laughs> I'll be like, fuck no, that sounds like garbage. Yeah. You gotta have to know what you're listening for, and you have to know kind of in your head what what would that riff sound like if it was played absolutely perfect or if it was played stylistically perfect. Well, let me piggyback on that. And the thing is with guitar playing, guitar players, and this is coming from a guy who's played for over 20 years and spent more hours than I'd ever want to admit playing the stupid instrument, is that the last thing any guitar player ever really thinks about is how they are picking the string or how your pick is attacking the string, how hard your how much tension you have in your picking hand versus how loose you are in your arm, etc. And the kind of tone it's representing, they just grab the guitar and you just start playing. You never really think about how you're playing. And if you want to get great guitar tone, you really need to sit down and think about how the hand is picking the string, experiment with different types and styles of picking, different uh, like firmnesses and tension in your hand and how hard you're holding the pick and how hard you're attacking the string. And once you work out those variables and figure out what sounds best for genre X, Y, and Z, then you can start really getting the performances down because you'll know what you should be looking for when a kid picks up and you're like, man, your palm needs to sound like dog shit. You grab the guitar, you go, duh, 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 and you're like, it's supposed to sound like that. Then you look at how he's playing and how you're playing and say, okay, look, change your angle like this, do this, hold your pick firmer, and boom, boom, now your chugs sound good. Totally. I do this, man, I do this thing at the boot camps, which basically you take a simple riff in the song that we're recording and we have the artist play it. Like in the last one, we had Rob from Chimera. And so... You know, Chimera riffs are simple, so I had him play the riff that we were recording, and it sounded great. Just sounded awesome, just like crushing and heavy and well-articulated and perfect. And then I was like, all right, so you guys think that this is an easy riff. I want you guys to play it. And so we passed the guitar around the room to the guitar players and try to have them track the same riff as Rob and it sounded like shit every single time. <laughs> I mean, they could all play it. They could all play the notes, but this was this was mind blowing to them because some it's an of them, art. yeah, it's yeah, dude, some of them are actual guitar players, and they couldn't they couldn't understand how it was possible that on a three note riff, you know, that hovers at the first, second, and third frets, that goes whatever, that it could sound so wildly different and i that that's my way of proving that tone is in the hands and when we say it's got to be tight we mean fucking tight so i don't know i think that that guy who asked that question is probably uh probably in a little bit of denial and needs to work on his guitar playing right um let's give him the benefit of the doubt though and let's pretend that 
and, and maybe he does, but let's just pretend that he records people who are fucking amazing at guitar, and he is okay. legitimately trying to get some tips on note definition and making the guitar more vibrant. Um, the first thing I'll say is that you need to understand what guitar tone is. So it's the DI being completely hammered to hell and back. <laughs> um and squashed and turned into a square wave almost. And then from there, it it goes through the cabinet, right? And let's, let's say that you mic the cabinet. So now it's going into the air from the speaker, and then it's going through a microphone, and then it's going through your AD, and then it's going into your computer. So it, there's so many variables in there, right? But let's just assume that you have the most amazing microphone setup, your cab rules, your fucking amp head is awesome. The guy playing the guitar is amazing. Uh, what are some mixing tricks uh, that we could tell Chandler about to uh, make a note definition or the guitar more vibrant? 1K. <laughs> 1K. <laughs> 1K. Yeah. F- the first thing to know is like, okay, the notes, like where are the notes going to come from? It, well, it depends on the tuning. Um, but you definitely want to do some frequency checking there. Uh I know, for example, let's say your guitar is in drop A, and everyone knows that A is is the 440, right? So if you take a guitar that's tuned in drop A, and you play the A note on the bottom string, and you look at it on a frequency graph, there's going to be a little bit of a, a spike around 440. Um, that's how fucking sound works. That's how frequencies work. So... If you are messing with a guitar track, you're trying to mix the guitar, you're trying to get more note definition, you have to pay attention to your tuning and you have to pay attention to what frequencies you're boosting and subtracting. Also, what else is going on in the song? Is there a synth that's also playing an A? Because now that that A in the guitar and the A in the synth are going to blend together and mask each other. Um, this is a problem me and Joel had, like... Uh, a couple months ago, a band kept giving us a note um, like, hey, we can't hear the piano. Turn the piano up. And we're like, dude, the guitar and the piano are playing the same fucking note and the singer singing the same note. There's In no the same way. octave. Yeah. <laughs> How can Fuck. we make it any louder? Because it's the way you wrote it is just fucked. Like you just can't. <laughs> it's all the same frequency. So it, it comes down to at the end of the day, it comes down to frequencies and how you're. Uh, how you're adjusting them, I, I guess. I think also it, it needs to be said that people should probably chill out on the gain in terms of how much distortion they're using from the amp. Pick harder uh, or less gain. Listen to Devil Dragon's yes. guitars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, or Monuments. Monuments is a great example because he, he plays on almost a clean sound. It's like a little bit of overdrive, but that heavy, that crushing heavy tone, it comes from how hard he plays. I think this is why overdrive pedals are so popular because it does allow you to get away with a little bit, I should say even less gain. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, one of the first people that I remember talking about this in detail was Andy Sneap talking about when people would ask him how how the, the Testament guitars ended up sounding so crushing, like how high was his gain? He was like, I have my gain at like four for him. He just plays so hard that that's where all the, you know, that's where that crushing tone comes from. 
But, you know, if you notice that there there's a certain point where uh, you add more gain and you're just adding fizz and noise. And I've seen a lot of a lot of people's settings, you know, when they send me the mixes for critique and their gain is boosted so far. Uh, I feel like it sounds like a basic thing, but turning the gain down is is not it is not it's not a joke. You should definitely turn it down. And then also, I think uh, when people are notching frequencies or doing subtractive EQ on guitar, I feel like they're looking at forums a lot and, you know, they'll read, well, someone says that they don't like 6K, so I'm just going to take 6K out, you know, just blindly notching things out. And that's the wrong, that's the wrong way to do it. You have to actually find where the offending frequencies are in that guitar tone and remove them. Let me piggyback on that too, because I'm a huge, that was what I was going to recommend too, is notching. I feel like one of the things that really, really helps no clarity is going in and finding little resonant rings. Like if you, once you train your ears to hear them, it's pretty obvious. Like there's areas where in any, like a cymbal or guitar, for whatever reason, frequencies build up and they kind of ring and you can go around with like a, a tight Q high boost uh, notch there on the EQ and you can slide it around and all of a sudden something will jump out and you'll go, fuck, that hurts my ears. And, you know, cut that a little bit, just a few dB down with a really tight EQ and then pop it in and out and see if that adds any more clarity to the top end of your guitars and to your attack. Yeah. On the mix crit Monday, we were talking about some, some of that. It's almost like a feedback in the certain frequencies. Um, another trick, uh, and this is kind of a mixing thing, and this really depends on having your tone perfect and you're playing perfect one thing i like to do is use a limiter because what happens is there's a lot of dynamics even in a tone that's completely crushed uh and distorted to hell and back you're still going to have some notes that are quieter than others um even like you know if you go from playing a chord that has four or five strings or notes in the chord to playing a single note um melody you're going to have a giant volume difference there and limiters can help you uh, bridge the gap, so to speak. Um, you know, make, make the melodies just as loud as the chords. And that's another thing. Like it, you can either do it with a limiter or you can do it with uh, volume automation or a compressor, but whatever it is, you need to be paying attention to the dynamics of the tone as well. And let me just say that ever since you guys turned me on to doing that to guitars, I'm way happier with my results. I remember that conversation. Are you using compression or limiter? Uh, I Well, I've started using both, actually. Um, but a few weeks back, you guys turned me on to using limiters on guitars, and I started to, and boom. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and so the, and then a few, like a week ago, I started trying some compression stuff you told me about, and more boom. So, and the reason that I'm saying this and why it's a big deal is because I come from a school of mixing and recording where compression isn't really used on guitars besides multiband, you know, in the low mids. Right, right. I come from a place where compression on guitars Compression on guitars is considered a no-no. I thought you were going to say I come from a land down under. <laughs> well, I am in Florida. Well, yeah, that's I like the whole Andy Sneap, Colin Richardson, Sukoff thing. You know, all those mixes. If you listen to their low end yeah. on their guitars, they swing around a lot. And you can hear the boom, boom, boom on the chugs. You know, like yep. the 128 blasts. 
And, um, you know, as opposed to like, like Joey and I, we crush the shit out of our guitars and it, you know, it, I feel like it adds a little bit more headroom in the mix too. Like it kind of like locks them in and gels them. Now it doesn't always work, you know, but it's one of those things that I'll sit down and I'll throw a limiter on. It'll be like, eh, or Ooh, that sounds way better. But sometimes when it works, it definitely adds a little bit more, I would say like headroom and more space in the mix. It kind of keeps them pinned more and you can kind of get them up there and get them a little bit more in front and apparent. Yeah getting them more apparent is the key for that for sure and i would say i have better luck using uh like limiting uh amp sims harder than i do using like real amps so i find if i limit at least like like i said i can only speak for me but in my experience if i limit the crap out of like an actual amp it doesn't seem to respond as much as like an amp sim does so i tend to limit the sims a little bit harder than i do the amps you can also change the reaction of certain frequencies by using uh, subtractive EQ going into a limiter. Um, for example, let's say you're using a limiter and you're crushing down on the guitar a little bit to even out the dynamics, but the guitar tone has a lot of 4K in it. That limiter is going to make the guitar sound one way with the 4K there, but it'll sound different if you remove that 4K and then and then limit it based on that change, like a you know pre-EQ into the limiter. It's kind of crazy. Like next time you're playing around with guitar tones, put a limiter on there and just fucking lower that threshold like by 20 dB. Just do something ridiculous and then take an EQ before the limiter and and mess around with some frequency sweeps. And you'll hear what I'm talking about. Like it can totally change the tone like drastic. It's hard to explain unless you actually experience it like and try it. But that's part of the strategy is that I'm... I'm trying to use subtractive EQ to make the other things that I want to hear come through better, and I'm using a limiter to enhance that. It's not all just straight EQ because uh, when you do some, when you start doing some drastic EQ stuff, you're changing the phase. You're also changing the volume. Um, so that's how the limiter counteracts that. And let me just uh, tell everyone that on that volume issue, the FabFilter Pro Q two plugin now has a makeup gain which is kind of cool oh yeah that's awesome yeah hmm. um yeah it's the first eq i know of that actually has makeup gain but it's a very cool eq it's got you know it's got tone matching it's got um it frequency it, it's got uh before and after uh frequencies like uh you can choose before you can choose after um it's and it's got auto makeup gain, which is super fucking cool. And I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent accurate, but it gets you within one or two dB, which is still, I mean, that's still really good. Consi- wow, yeah, that's a cool feature. I could see yeah. that could be very useful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's relatively new, so that's why I figured I'd throw that in there. But yeah, the if if uh, people find that they're having a lot of trouble EQing stuff and keeping their volumes where they need to be, then maybe look into that plugin. Yeah. And I mean, if you're looking for some, some wild ideas, try, I mean, there's so many things you can do. Like one thing you could do also is take a DI and completely limit it or clip it so that it's just a, a a square wave and then EQ that and mix it into your guitar tone and you'll get your notes to pop out more. Um, But that's kind of some advanced stuff that I I wouldn't say. Like, if your tone sucks, I wouldn't say go try that. 
because that's not going to fix your tone. That's something you want to do if you have a really badass tone and you're just trying to kind of uh, be competitive with Sonics, I would say. Yeah, the that I feel like I, I agree with you completely. The tone needs to be sweet to begin with before you start adding DIs into it because I've heard some people screw that one up and usually it's because their tone sucked to begin with and then suddenly they've got a clean tone in there that they don't know how to manage and and then it sounds sh- goofy shit shit soup <laughs> becomes uh, a mega portion of shit soup i guess well it just goes back to <laughs> as we were discussing earlier getting your fundamentals right and making sure that you know the pick attack and the playing and the strings and the player and etc everything is right and it's engineered correctly and it makes your life downstream infinitely better because you know it, it, recording is about a little a bunch of little teeny small things across an entire system adding up downstream and that's the difference between that one or two percent you hear at the top tier of things is all of that attention to detail yeah um that kind of leads to this next question that we have here from nick hanslip and this is cool. This is a cool question. He says, when and where is it more important to be technical than to be musical when mixing? Because we're talking about note definition and guitar. So it leads to, you know, being musical and versus being technical. It isn't mixing the marriage of the two, really? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, and when you're in a mix, uh, I guess I would say you would want to limit the amount of technical uh, technical stuff that you need to do you know, as much as possible. You don't want to be um, moving drum hits around. You don't want to be routing stuff. I I consider all the technical part of mixing to be the prep. And then the musical part of mixing is actual, the process of actually mixing. And I guess if they mean technical as knowing exactly what your tools do, for instance. Yeah. Like, like what MS processing is or something. I'm just trying to think of, different ways that they could mean technical because yeah they could mean technical as in the mix prep part of it and the routing and all that they could also mean technical as in doing some ms process that's very math intensive or something yeah if you don't yeah it's like uh if you don't understand the tool then i don't think you should be using it yeah exactly and i feel like that should be done on your off time figuring out how to do big technical things like that uh you should practice that stuff the way you would practice an instrument so that when you go to mix you're just being musical that's that's my take on it at least yeah that's definitely i think a very important point is that you know when you're mixing the less you think about it usually the better it turns out i mean it goes back to i believe we're talking about on an earlier podcast like chris lord algae for example he has like a three-hour hard limit when he mixes a song or approximately and if he doesn't have it going by then you know, it's, it's faders back up and, you know, let's restart. So it, it's kind of like when I approach a mix, I hit, it's already prepped for me because I have an amazing assistant who does an incredible job, but like I hit, oh, I'm going to hit play and I'm just going to listen to the song and then just, it's going to hit me and it's going to speak to me and I'm going to start moving faders and try not to think about, Ooh, well those guitars need like a, you know, one DB at three K or this or that, or, you know, just 
hit play, listen to the song. What does it need? You know, or is the bass and the drums gelling? Are they not? Are they, you know, just things like that. You just, you got to go with your gut instinct a lot. And then, you know, when you get, when you want to sit back after you've kind of gotten that out of the way, your initial creativity, you know, like when you're car testing it, for example, or laptop speaker testing, you can kind of be more analytical and be like, all right, something's not right in the high end of the guitars. Let's use this and, you know, do some crazy notching stuff or this or that. And, you know, DI tricks, for example, um, to remedy some of those problems. Yeah. You want, want to know something uh, or something that I get asked a lot is what are some DI tricks that can be done to fix a shitty DI? And maybe we can cover that too, because I feel like um, a lot of guys who, who are trying to get good guitar tone are dealing with bad DIs. And may, maybe we've got some, maybe we've got some tips and tricks on how to salvage a shitty DI. Because I know that I know there's some stuff that I do to DIs, uh, but uh, but there's sometimes that you can't do anything like if the battery's dead. I've had some luck with like a, using a transient designer, for example. I like a lot on bass. Sometimes, for whatever reason, if the bass player is kind of sloppy and like a lot of the notes ring together and they don't have like good fret, uh, like left hand um, fret control where they're able to mute the other strings that they're not playing or, you know, or like a guitar player, for example, has a lazy right hand. So when they're palm muting, the B string on top is running out if you're in standard tuning. Um, standard tuning, who uses that? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. I've definitely I, heard of it. I, I just realized what I said. But uh, for example, like when you've got like a really kind of sloppy bass player on a bass DI, sometimes going in with a transient designer and kind of like tightening up the sustain can get the bass a little bit tighter in relation to the kick drum and fast passages where there's double bass and things like that. Or enhancing the attack transient on a guitar track can make the guitar player seem, uh, again, not always, but it's one of those things you got to try and either you're going to be like, yeah, or eh. Uh, it can make the guitar seem like the kid picked harder if he has a lazy hand and doesn't know what he's doing. You got to watch out though, because uh, because you want to not you want to not have these weird spikes though Absolutely. going into the that's that becomes the problem with using a transient designer incorrectly on I a DI. I very is, very very rarely do those types of things because it's you can get you can sometimes you can create more problems than you're actually trying to fix. Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest way to fix it is to retrack it. But I've definitely used the transient designer. I find that sometimes using a transient designer and then compressing it a little bit after the transient designer. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever tried that, but doing that after the transient designer can can sometimes tame it to where it doesn't sound like it's. Uh, like it does, it gets rid of those weird spikes, if you know what I'm talking about. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it still gives a little bit more attack. I, I'm not really on this train in terms of like fixing DIs, but I got some cool DI tricks that I use to like fix frequency problems and to make tones sound better in certain ways, but it's not really to like fix uh, shitty DIs. So do you have any other? What are some of your other uh, tricks that you've got? Well, definitely. EQing, like say, say that you don't have a good overdrive pedal, for instance. Uh, one of the one thing that is important to know is what is an overdrive pedal doing? Uh, it's normally doing a like a gradual drop off, like a tube screamer, for instance, from like three fifty on down. Okay, 
and that's pretty much all it's doing if you're using it without any drive, which most people do. So say that say that you don't like the Tube Screamer, but you still want that tightening up effect that the Tube Screamer gives you, or you just don't have one at all and none of the sim overdrives are working for you, you can just simulate that with EQ. You find out exactly what what the pedal is doing, uh, what the pedal in, you know, in mind does, and then apply that EQ to the DI before it hits the amp. And so with a tube screamer, yes, yeah, so around 350 on down, uh, it gradually slopes off. So add that to the DI and Presto, it will pretty much sound like it's got a tube screamer on it. It sounds really simple, but that's something that my engineer and I have been doing lately to DIs uh, in order to skip overdrive pedals because sometimes they add some unwanted stuff. You don't all, you don't have to use an overdrive pedal just because people use them. Uh, sometimes it's better not to use them, but you still want some of the benefits. So that that's how we figured out to get around having to use them when we don't want to. One of the most powerful things you can do with DI um, in terms of like mixing tricks would be to actually automate the DI into the guitar amp. And you can, it's easy to go crazy with this. So definitely uh, don't do it a lot. Just do it where you need it. it. Usually for me, I have to do it in leads. Uh, if I'm doing a tone for a lead, I've got the tones sounding really cool and I got it how I want it. But somewhere in the lead, there's a note that the guitar player hits, and it just makes like a gigantic spike in the 2K area. Um, that could be because of how loud that note is going into the uh, amp. And a lot of times you can have notes at the wrong volume, like an unnatural volume, because you've punched in so many little performances that you're getting like you're getting like an unnatural frequency sound, I guess. Uh, it's really hard to explain, but I'm trying my best here. Um, so what I would do is I'd go through and I'd, I would find the problem areas in the lead where I think certain notes stick out in a bad way. And I'll experiment with turning those up and down, going into the amp, like preamp, to see if that will fix it. And a lot of times it does. And if it doesn't, you might have a situation where let's say the lead is uh, like a pull-off lead and you've got this drone note that is going through reverb and delay and it's like repeating over and over and every time they do a pull-off it goes to that one note and that note repeats and then it overlaps with itself with the delay and the reverb and now you've got like this one frequency spike that's just fucking killing uh, bef you can put in like an EQ adjustment before the amp to kind of decrease the amount of that note um those are just some of the things i've done i mean i'm self-taught i'm trial and error i don't know if those things are retarded or not they're not they're i've done that too i've actually <laughs> no i've done that too actually that's that's uh, a really great method i've done that too that like especially if i'm getting tracks from someplace else and they're not fixable like by retracking you know like i think the important point is that um a lot of people think mixing is like okay put you know, put my track through some EQ, put it through some compression, but I tend to think that mixing is way more complicated than that sometimes, especially with metal where you've got the the noise effect and the wall of sound. Um, 
it really does require you to get dirty in a lot of tracks, like to really dig into the lead and fucking sit there and automate EQs on and off and like, you know, fuck with the volume of the DI going into the amp and all this stuff you have to do to, to get that performance to really come out the way it's, you know, the way you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's also like, say for instance, you have a fast picked part you know, where the guy starts to trail off or, you know, after ha- like halfway through or something. Yeah. Or there's some sort of a pattern where at the beginning of the pattern, he's playing hard, but then it becomes only the first note of every pattern grouping where he plays hard. And then it's like, you know, hard, soft, soft, soft. You know, the that sort of approach, the... um the fixing the automating the eq or automating the volume to uh to make it consistent like it needs to be is a great way to get around that i've used that lots of times and it uh definitely works and you know definitely as far as leads go i feel like that not only solves the problem of you know if a guitar player hits a note and makes a weird frequency spike it solves that but it also solves the problem of well when the guy goes down to, you know, he's doing a fast passage and goes down to lower notes on an arpeggio or on a run, and suddenly those notes start to disappear. That's a great way to solve that problem. You ever do that on bass? Because I do that often where, like, um, you know, the bass player will be playing, like, on the low A or whatever tuning they're in, and then all of a sudden they'll go up to some high note. It'll be really, really quiet and tiny on the grid, and I'll, sometimes I'll jack up those notes so there's no loss and perceived low end when the guy goes up. So when I get to yeah. actually reamping it, for example, it'll always have the same amount of low end energy, just at a different frequency. Yeah, you got to do that. Yeah, it's it's crucial. Um, I also have the problem where, you know, when a bass player goes to a higher note on a higher string, that that note just pops out like, like the low end is gone, but the note itself pops out like in a really annoying way. And I feel like that's the only way that I know of to really fix it. Yeah, you, you could always EQ a, like an automation. I mean, that would be pretty cumbersome, but you could EQ some of the top off and boost some bottom just on that one note. But I mean, that's a, if you really got a lot of time to spend on the mix, it's <laughs> something I wouldn't play with very often. So Some of these guys spend a long time on their mixes, though. I've had to critique some mixes lately where guys were working on their mix for like a year. How does that happen? I mean, I, I guess I guess I understand if you're doing this and it's kind of like your hobby and you're playing around. But in the real world, it's like if I don't get at least two or three songs done a day, I feel like I haven't done anything with my life and I was not productive enough and I've absolutely failed at my job. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think the people that are still in the learning process uh, have the luxury of fucking around with one song for a year. But that's also I mean, that can also kind of put you in a weird space because then like you everything that you think you know about kicks isn't really true. It's only true for that one kick and that one song. And then you fucking go to the next song. You're like, Oh, I don't know anything about kicks. That's one of the things too. I feel like really separates the men from the boys in mixing is that, you know, anybody can sit there for fucking a year or two and, you know, make this amazing mix when you, if you sit there and tweak and tweak and refine and refine, but in the real world, it's like, 
as a working pro, sometimes you only have a few hours or, you know, a day or two to mix a whole album and it's, it sucks, but you just have to do it and you got to be fast and you got to be able to rip out really high level results on a time crunch with, you know, who knows what the hell you're getting either in terms of tracks. It can be tracked like dog shit, but you've got to put out something that sounds brilliant. Like you spent, you know, a year of your life in each one of these songs, but you've got two days to do it. You've got 15 songs to get through. So, I mean, that's, that's where learning and, you know, learning to mix fast and mix good fast really pays off because there's just so many scenarios where somebody calls you the day before, or, you know, the labels are notorious for this. They'll be like, oh yeah. Um, so in the last three months while we were waiting for the record to come out on radio now, everybody's mixing bass up about two dB hotter than the last mix you turned in. So I need you to go back and remix the whole fucking record, but add a lot more bass. And you're like, well, you can't just turn up the bass. It's going to fuck this up, this, that. So I got to actually, you know, and then you got to, you got to do it like tomorrow despite whatever else you have going on in your life and you have to get turned in on time, you know, and it's just... Ah, oh, the life. The life. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the, the glamour. Well, I feel like, yeah, maybe it doesn't... Maybe you don't spend a year on the mix, but you spent years learning how to mix. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good analogy or way of putting it. Well, that's how I see it because uh, what I feel like these people are doing wrong when they spend a year on a mix is they're totally screwing up their perspective. Like Joey said, like you spend all this time learning one thing and that that's not how you learn mixing. You get better by doing lots of songs, just like with songwriting. It's not about writing the one perfect song. It's about writing 500 songs and maybe 20 of them are great. And it's, I really do think it's the same with mixing. The more different, the more songs you do, the better you're going to get over the period of years to where you really only need to spend, uh, you know, a day or a few days or a week on an album and you're I, good. I think that's an amazing point. And the reason I say that is because something I get into artists, argue, I'll argue a lot with artists over, they'll be like, you know, we could sit there and we could tweak, tweak something, just little minute things that don't matter. I'm like, you guys are missing the fucking point. You have to get your damn music out so people can listen to it. No one gives a shit if the snare is up 0 0.02 and a half dB other than you. You have to get something out. There's a certain point of like diminishing marginal returns where it sounds good. It sounds like a song. You've done your job. You have to get material out so you can get on the road. You can, you know, tour. You can make money You can, and work on your band. Yeah, it's really about the, uh, the ticking time bomb. Like once you've written a song, it's already old. So you got to fucking, okay, you wrote the song. Now fucking put it out. Like you got to hurry <laughs> because it's, it's based on... A lot of shit it's based on what's going on now it's based on what happened and if that song comes out two years later after you wrote it it's just gonna be behind i've noticed a direct correlation between my artists that are very successful and mine that are not in terms of how they get songs written for example and i'll tell you the bands that spend a lot of time just nitpicking the shit out of like one song and dude we spent seven months working on the song they usually don't get as far as the guys like, listen, we wrote 40 songs this month. And out of those songs, you know, a few of them are brilliant. Some of them are good and the rest of them are shit. But we tried to write an amazing song every time. And then af after time and many years of doing it, you would say their batting average kind of creeps up and they become really good. And then they can write better songs in a shorter period of time. You just have to keep writing and keep mixing. And I mean, it all ties in. It's the same thing. Well, nobody bats a thousand and you know a good batting average exactly. a good batting average is in the 300 range which is 
30%. So I'd say... I think it's more about consistency. Totally. If you're writing great songs 30% of the time, that's phenomenal. Though with mixing, you probably should be hitting the mark more than 30% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Here's a cool question, and I have a a pretty good answer for it too. I want to see what you guys think as well. Kevin Newland asks some t- something that personally bugged me for a long time and still does from time to time. I will get a sweet sounding instrumental mix, but then when I add the vocals, they get buried or lost. How do you keep a solid vision of leaving room for vocals to sit while mixing only instruments first? Um, I actually do work like that. I don't know how you guys do it, but I, I usually mix all the music first and I then I mix all the vocals and I put them to, together. Yeah, same here. I do the same. Okay. So everyone I know everyone I know works like that in metal. That's cool. Um cool. So I'm not far off the mark. I kind of <laughs> answered that question last week or not last week, but a few weeks ago. I we were talking about my mix bus chain and how I get around that is what I do with my mix, I get my instrumental stuff going on a separate bus compressor, and then I add in my vocals on top of that mix and mix that in, meaning that so they're floating over the top, and it's a lot easier to get them. Because um, if you turn up the vocals too hot, then it starts pumping down and clamping on the, you know, the guitars and stuff. So it's kind of like a Fox Michael Brower type technique where I separate my vocals from my instrumental mix and I get my instrumental absolutely slamming and compressed, but then I don't run my vocals into said bus compressor so it doesn't negatively affect the balance I've spent two hours getting. And then I put just a little bit of a kiss on my mastering comp to glue that vocal to that actual mix and I find it has a more... I would say less detrimental effect in terms of like you can get the vocals clear and with more apparent volume. But that's OTB. Yeah. Well, you can do it ITB too, you know, but you can PIITB. <laughs> it, it, it helps you get the vocals to sit and kind of lock in with the mix, but you can have more control over the vocals and the relationship with the mix. It's not, you know, when you have a really dense vocal section, it's not going to kill your bass and your drums and your guitars. And to take that a step further, if you're doing it in the box, you can always add the track spacer plugin uh, to Joel's method and sidechain the instrumental mix to the vocals. If anyone's wondering what track spacer does, is it's a sidechainable EQ to where it will it will give the opposite curve to what's coming in. So, for instance, if you sidechain the vocals with the music. Um, and you put the EQ on the music when the vocals are going, it will, you know, give the uh, it'll duck those frequencies in the music automatically. And so that's, you know, if you had that set to a pretty subtle mode, um, you know, to not neuter your music, that will help as well. I actually have never heard of that, but that sounds really cool. You got all the cool plugins and shit over there, don't you? Uh, yeah. I, I've, Every week, man. <laughs> I've heard of some cool ones lately, man. Like, I've definitely had some really, really cool plugins come my way in like the past few weeks. But yeah, Track Spacer, that's, that's a really, really, really good one. It's a little CPU intensive, but it is really really cool we only need one instance right yeah you only need, well i guess you can use it multiple times but for this for this particular uh Scenario, setting yeah. i guess for this particular uh situation yeah you only need one instance uh, you put it on put it on your instrumental mix and have it sidechain 
to the vocals where the vocals are the key input to the plugin and then it will turn down you know the vocal frequencies in the instrumental mix uh yeah and kevin i'll tell you what i do um and i think this is kind of maybe you guys have seen this too and let me know I think people are afraid to EQ vocals. What do you What do you guys think? I EQ the fuck out of mine, so I don't know how to react to that statement. <laughs> I EQ mine quite a bit as well. Yeah, and for me, um, the very first thing I do is I look at the mic and the and the vocalist, and I'm like, okay, do we got a lot of head voice? Do we got a lot of chest? If we got a lot of chest, we need to make some low mid to lower frequency adjustments, and if we got a lot of uh, really tinny frequencies get those out of there. That's the first thing. And those those are just the prerequisite before you start doing any other processing. Just get those things taken care of. Next thing I do is a multiband compressor. Um, and I use that to control the performance. So there might be some notes that have too much bass. There might be some notes that have too much treble. The multiband gives me a nice flatline uh, version of the performance, which wouldn't be possible uh, otherwise. Then I go into a normal compressor, and the normal compressor is to even out the performance, um, not just frequency-wise, but volume-wise throughout the entire performance. And then I start doing EQ, and I do additive EQ. I like doing a lot of additive EQ on vocals. I think that microphones microphones actually have a natural EQ curve to them, and a lot of times there are boosts in there. But I think production has gone as far as just needing a lot more. We're we're used to hearing really trebly vocals, or we're used to you know hearing vocals really loud, uh, and now we're used to hearing vocals that are perfectly in tune. So when you go back and listen to an old Aerosmith song, you're like, oh, that note's kind of flat. Um, but that's because they didn't have auto tune. <laughs> so there's a lot of things to it um, to prevent it from getting lost, and it. It all stems from, you know, being able to understand all of the instruments where they're sitting frequency wise and being able to know how to counteract that. If you've got guitars that are playing a lot of low notes, you're going to be a little bit luckier because it's going to be easier to make melodies stick out because usually the melodies will be one or two octaves way above. But let's say the guitars are around the same octave range as the vocal. You're going to have a hard time. You're going to have to do a lot of additive EQ to get those vocals to really stick out and, and punch through the mix. So don't be don't be afraid to use EQ. I use a lot of it. Okay, I was afraid to EQ vocals once upon a time as well because being too extreme, I felt like they started to sound like they're in a telephone booth or too bassy or kind of harsh or it was just kind of weird. And then I got a vocalist a few years back who just sounded like shit and I had huge hopes riding on this record. And I just was like, fuck it. I'm going to need to go extreme on this and not stopping until this sounds great. And ever since then, I've been pretty brutal with EQ on vocals, and I I really do feel like it makes a huge, huge difference. So I don't know. I'm not afraid to EQ vocals. That that's my story. You're not gonna get there. You're you're not gonna get there by just leaving the microphone flat, because a lot of the microphone designs that we have are all based on really old things, like like a long time ago, right? And no one has really come through and been like, okay. Let's change microphones. Let's add like fucking 
6 dB uh, response at 16K. Like, that's just not... I believe there's a blue mic that they made. It's very unpopular, the rep was telling me, but I went to a clinic, and the guy was saying they made some mic. It's about a 1000 bucks, and I cannot for the life of me remember what it's called, but there's a mic that is, like, specifically made to be a little bit more mix-ready than the standard condenser. And yeah. as soon as he heard it, everybody in the room was like, oh, that sounds like shit. And I'm like, that sounds like a mixed vocal. I'm like, I get that. And, every, you know, the other guys were like, ah, that sucks, dude. And I'm like, well, you guys work at Guitar Center. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, it's kind of like when you, uh, you know, you get your first drum mic pack for the first time and you you know you're real stoked you go out into the garage and you <laughs> hook, you hook it all up and, you, and then you start hitting toms and you're like god these sound like shit so it's like yeah well no one's really changed the design of the tom <laughs> in the last 30 40 years or whatever so they still sound like crap and you do have to put a ton of eq on a tom to make it sound like the way you hear it in records also like there's all these myths, I feel like. A lot of people f- say, you know, oh, you always have to use an SM57 on the snare. Have you ever tried a fucking condenser on the snare? It sounds way better. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, dude, I, I love using a KM84 on the snare. Holy shit, it sounds so good. And lately I've tried an SM7B on snare, and wow, just life-changing. You got to experiment. You can't be afraid to fucking play with stuff, you know? Yeah, don't put, uh, I mean... Don't go putting fucking kick drum mics on snares. I mean, maybe try that. I don't know. But you got to just, like, think outside the box. Like, you know, let's say you mic up a snare once every two or three weeks, and you're like, man, always sounds like shit. Try a different mic. Try a different snare. Um, (laughs) Maybe, you know, like, it it comes down to the drummer, too. There's a lot of drummers who hit like pussies. You got to fucking hit the drum really fucking hard to make it sound badass <laughs> when i started um it's kind of funny you mentioned that because when i started um learning to record there was like some book i forgot by bob osinski and he was talking about in the very first chapter recording some band like from the 80s like men at work or something and they were talking how they use like a u87 on every single direct mic and overhead of the entire drum kit and I'm, i just calculated the cost of that and i was like holy shit that's like thirty thousand dollars a U87s just on drums. Like, what the hell? <laughs> wow. Well, you want something interesting is that uh, John Brown, the dude from Monuments, the guitar player, is a killer engineer. And both him and Jay Rustin, who is, you know, God when it comes to producing and mixing and everything, both turned me on to using condensers on toms. Uh, they like 414s on toms, and I would have never thought of doing that, but... I love the I love that mic on Tom's. Holy too. shit, it's so good. It just I mean, it's so different than how I learned. I learned um I learned four twenty ones on Tom's and that's just you know, that's just how I was brought up and trained and everything. And now I've been using condensers and my Tom sounds are so much better. There's a mic I really like on Tom's and um it's by a company called Stellar Audio and what they do is they take like old famous mics like U sixty sevens and et cetera and they you know, they take like a Chinese donor body and, but they do the same circuit with modern parts and, you know, but they're like six or 700 bucks, you know, they're not really that expensive, but they're really, really good mics for the price. And, um, there's a mic that I like, and that we used when we did drum forge, I think it's the CM six, I think, or is it the CM five? I don't remember which one and my assistant's going to kill me because I screw this up every week. 
But I love <laughs> we, we use both of them. Yeah, I love that mic on it, and I like to put mine three feet up and actually like fade or time shift the sample up to match the direct. Uh, because when you have a condenser on the tom, it sounds like the drum actually sounds in the room as opposed to like a 421, which is just like a doom, you know, that, that like spiky, clicky, punchy. It's got like smack. a filter sound to it. Yeah, it's, it's just a cool sound. And it's definitely something I enjoy experimenting with when I have time. It's amazing to hear the difference for the first time, especially when you put that condenser on the tom and you hear it in comparison to a 421. But what blows my mind is how many people will just like never try it. Yeah, never try it. That's the thing. That's the beauty of sampling is when you're taking samples of a kit, you can throw a whole bunch of mics that you couldn't really use in a real world situation. You know, you don't want a $3,000 mic on a Tom when the dude comes around with the roll and then smacks it and breaks it. And then you want to kill the drummer. Well, yeah. But when you're sampling it, you can put that mic right there and he, he can hit away all day and you know you're not going to be in jeopardy. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you, you have to not do stupid things like you, <laughs> like you like use a $3000 mic when you have a neanderthal hitting the drums <laughs> but 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 yeah that's that's a big big thing for me is once i started to try things like that that were outside the box outside of how i learned uh, my recordings actually got a lot better and it's not that there's anything wrong with using 421s on toms lots of great tom sounds have come from that and lots of great snare sounds have come off of a 57. But the point is that that's not going to work every single time. And if you do that every time, uh, A, you're going to be using the wrong mics sometimes and B, you're going to stagnate, which is the ultimate killer, I think, of recordings is a engineer that's burned out and stagnating. So, and you got to keep yourself from doing that. The way to do that is to try new things. Now, it doesn't mean that because you tried a 414 on a Tom and because we said it's cool that it's going to work for you either. But what it means is that your brain is going to keep on developing an ear for recording if you try stuff like that out. Doesn't mean you have to go with it. There's like that famous saying, and I don't remember what it is exactly, but there's like a very famous quote for people that are into self-improvement and success and things like that and read those types of books. But there's something like your success is determined on how many degrees outside of your comfort zone that you're willing to step. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It kind of, kind of echoes what you just said, Al. Yeah, I I totally believe that. And also to take the whole thing about microphones not being developed much in the past few decades, you know, SM7B, which is kind of like the the gold standard for screams and all that. Don't forget, Michael Jackson's Thriller was recorded with one of those. And fan, obviously, great sounding record, classic, but we're talking, what, uh, 30 years or almost 30 yeah. years. So... <clears throat> It, there is a lot that you have to do in order to get it to sound modern anyways. Uh, if that was the mic that pop hits were being recorded on 30 years ago, it's definitely not up to par by itself. There's just no way. Um, though I have had a few vocalists where they just start singing and they sound phenomenal. It doesn't end up holding up in a mix. Yeah, you forget about the... Uh, well, I was going to say it's nice when you have someone that can sing and it makes you forget about the mic, the pre, the chain, like you're just not even thinking about it. Yeah, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But then I always do end up having to process them a lot anyways, not because their voice isn't great, but because there's a wall of noise <laughs> going on, <laughs> you know, that they have to cut through. And 
you know, a lot of cutting through is just EQ. Mm -hmm. And ride the volume knob, ride the fader. Speaking of riding the fader, I'm curious if you guys have ever used this plugin because I get asked about it all the time and I used it once and never again. But let me guess, vocal yeah. rider? Fuck yeah. that plugin. <laughs> I yeah, I don't really like it. It's I mean, it's a really, really cool idea and I am wish I had thought of it because I bet they sold a fucking butt ton of that plugin, but it when it comes down to the real world, like I don't see it being used and I don't I personally don't use it. So too much of a control freak to let a computer make a decision. I have to I, I can't if I'm mixing, I can't let the computer do volume adjustments. I want to be able to see it. There's no way. Totally. Yeah, it just, I tried it once and was like, what? No. <laughs> I do a lot of mine. Um, I think mine are a lot more technical moves. I'm not really doing a lot of like artsy writing. I'm just kind of going into the chorus. You know, I might say, oh, I want this little part of the vocal to stick out. So I'll do a little 3 dB bump. Oh, that wasn't enough. Let me try five. Okay, that works. Uh, go to the next one, you know. And um, for stuff where I need to get a little bit fancier, I'll use a fader port. It's a PreSonus product, and it's pretty much. I think it's compatible with all DAWs. It's a USB thing. You plug it in. Um, it shows up in your devices, and you could just hit right, and it's got a little motorized fader on there, and and you just move the fader. Uh, it's just one fader, so whatever channel you have have selected, it allows you to control. I'm looking and, it uh, up right now. Fader pull. It it works pretty good. It's the only thing that's a bummer about it is that if you want to use the motorized f functionality, you have to have it plugged into the wall. So you got two cables coming out of it instead of just one. But other than that, it's pretty pretty cool. Um, it's got play, stop, fast forward, rewind, record buttons. Uh, so there's some other functions on there, but I, I mainly just use it for a little motorized fader. Uh, I think it's only like 200 bucks. So 129. Cool. 129. So there you go. So you just use it for writing automations. Yeah. If I need to, if I need to do something that I can't do with my mouse or that I, you know, that I'm not going to type in or draw with a pencil, I pull that up, pull that out, plug it in and go with that. It's kind of like having a, a control surface without a billion channels. You just got one channel, and it works on each, the one that you have selected. You know, they got iPad apps you can do that on and stuff like that, too, now, which is kind of neat. Yeah, I'm not the type of person that needs to move three faders with three different fingers all at the same time. Like, I can do it one at a time, and so it works perfectly for me. That's that's cool. I, I'm not a, I don't like control surfaces very much. I, could I never see, use I, mine. I could see that one being handy. Uh, but uh, more than that, it's kind of like, wow, this is quite quite a pricey paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it looks cool. That's that's the thing. Like people walk in the studio, like, dang, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend, one of my good friends, has a Neve board, and it's like a I don't know, forty eight channel Neve board or something, and it doesn't work. But he has it in his, you know, it's in the room and it's like turned on and stuff and. People always walk into the room and they're like impressed, you know, they're like, oh man, this is going to be a great record. He's got this giant board and everything, but you like never hook anything into it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, that's a pretty expensive uh, 
table that you've got there, dude. He's like, yeah, I know it sucks. Let's <laughs> put it on Vegas mode and let the lights amuse the uh, band. <laughs> yeah, bands love Vegas mode. They really do. I think you were telling me that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't actually turned on Vegas mode in a long time, but that's kind of like the thing that the one amateur producer in the band always wants to see. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I've always dreamed of having a board. Does it do that thing where the knobs move? Yeah. Vegas, (laughs) Vegas mode. I don't even know how to turn it on. I haven't God, I haven't done that in so long, but yeah, Vegas mode is a good crowd appeaser. I call, I call those things client appeasement tools. Uh, you know, <laughs> motorized, motorized faders, things like that. I mean, I, I get it. Motorized faders are useful. But for those of us who don't really use control surfaces much, which is most of us, um, I think that stuff like motorized faders is are there more to impress people who don't know anything. All right. Um, we're getting to the end here. I got one more question. I guess we'll uh, answer this and wrap it up. This question comes from Taylor Borden, and he asks, Do you guys have any little tricks that don't change the sound of a whole track, but make it better? Also, how do you use dynamic compression on a master? I'll take the first one. Um, One thing that I like to do a lot of my masters, and this kind of goes back to like EQing guitars and cymbals we were talking about earlier, is notching out little frequencies. So as soon as I print my mix down off my analog bus, Um, I'll usually go and grab a little EQ with some really teeny notches and just try to find little things in the mix where there's just frequency buildups across the whole spectrum that just annoy the shit out of me. Like I always hate like 3.2 to 4K just pisses me off. I cut it out of everything and there's always too much of it downstream when the mix is done. So I always go and try to find like that little bit of harshness in there and just kind of notch it out a little bit. And sometimes having like a really tight cue deep cut on a master and having like a few little frequency cleanups when you AB that on and off, you'll notice an absolutely huge difference in like the mix sounding, you know, that extra 5% better, but you're not really changing the mix. You're just kind of cleaning up a few rogue frequencies on the master. Yeah, I have some uh, go-to frequencies that I definitely mess around with on every, well, not on, when I say every track, I mean every song. Um, Like, like I, I've noticed a lot of my mixes, or or maybe I should say a lot of my masters um, have like a lot of 4K. It seems like, or maybe I just fucking hate that frequency, as we all know. So <laughs> fuck 4K. I take it out to the car, and I'm like, nope, it's got too much 4K, and I'll go back in and I'll adjust it. Um, and I really feel like it it improves the whole track, but it doesn't really change the sound of it. It just kind of like gets rid of that annoying little thing that I don't want to hear. Also, in terms of individual tracks like drums or guitars um i mean gosh there's a billion there's a billion tricks that you can do like one thing i like to do with drums is i'll i'll take the whole drum mix and i'll duplicate it into another track and i'll put distortion on it and then i turn it all the way down and then whenever i want my drums to have just a little bit more energy i grab that fader and i i pull it up and i'm it's like a parallel distortion and so I drive that in there. Uh, like maybe I want the chorus drums to just pound a little bit harder. I'll I'll drive that up, automate it into the chorus, and then pull it back down. It's also a cool way to make your verses and like say the verse beat and the chorus beat are pretty much similar. You can make those two beats sound differently by using a parallel to automate in and out. I think one one thing that I do that that uh, 
probably nobody listening to this is going to do is I have this unit called an 88 by a company called JCF Audio. They have this really weird function called PEP that I'm not sure exactly what it does, but it makes everything better. So there you go. That's a simple thing that I do that put things through and suddenly suddenly they sound better. That is a really expensive toy. Yeah, it is really, really expensive. Do you guys ever uh, play with making your choruses wider? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you an example. Well, for example, when we did Drum Forge, that was one of the ideas between having tracking at X, Y, and space pair and being able to switch behind so you can drop a space pair on the chorus and increase your imaging and your width. So um, in terms of actual mixing, I mean, yeah, sometimes with guitars, I mean, I usually don't use a lot of wideners and things like that, but sometimes just taking the panning from 80 to 100, for example, or, you know, um, cymbals, uh, same thing with the panning. Uh, there's just a lot of little tricks and things you can do to kind of make the chorus pop out and be wider and more in your face. For me, it's not a lot of mixing tricks. It's more production tricks. But I guess that line gets blurred quite a bit. I, I don't find myself doing like crazy stuff. Like say a song comes in and I'm just mixing it. I'm not going to do a lot of crazy stuff. I'm not going to go grab my guitar and like play chords and stuff. But like if I'm recording a song, I might do that. If I want the chorus to have a bigger, wider sound, I might go in and like say add a crash that's like hard panned on the right in addition to the crash that the, that the guy's already hitting. Um, so it just makes it sound like, oh, wow, the crash is like oh, way over here now. Uh, and then now there's like two extra guitars that are just like super wide and like, oh, now there's all these extra vocals that came out of nowhere that are like hard pan left and right and have reverb and stuff. So for me, it's a lot of production stuff. I don't really find myself using like wideners or like, uh, I mean, I just don't do a lot of mixing tricks to make it wider. It's more production for me. I totally agree with that. Uh, yeah, from I feel like the arrangement should be doing it. But I just heard, I remember reading this week that somebody said that they do that on choruses. Like they try to like kick a widener on the guitars to make them sound wider. And just been thinking about that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I'd like to maybe try that. Yeah, it, it seems like. Seems like a good idea, right? I like to do stuff that is... Uh, I like to do what I would say cost-effective moves. Mm -hmm. So instead of like, you know, if I if I can figure out how to make a double sound wider without making the vocalist do it again, I'll, I'll do that because it's more cost-effective. If I can make w one guitar track sound bigger by adding a little bit more bass or something um, like for a certain part, that's more cost effective for me to do that than to actually go in and find a guitar that has more bass and like record it. And those are kind of extreme examples, but it's important to realize the difference between doing that or being lazy and just trying to fix it in the mix. There's definitely a difference where you're like, you're weighing your options like, oh, do I want to make the vocalist do two more hours of vocals to fucking double everything we just did? Or is there a way that I can just do a chain that makes it accomplish my goal? Yeah, that, that's there is a real fine line. But I feel like the fine line is, is what you're doing actually going to accomplish the goal or not? And if it's going to actually accomplish the goal, then why is it cheating? You know? Uh, I feel like sometimes people try to get away with uh, 
shortcuts and then they end up shortchanging their mix or their production. But if it's not shortchanging it, then what's wrong with it? Why? Yeah, I don't think there's any such thing as cheating either. I mean, it's all just a show. Like when I listen to a Chris Lord algae mix, I'm like, dude, this is like full of cheat. It just blows my mind. And like, I think that's what a mix should do. I don't think it should be like, oh yeah, I can tell they used a 57 on a Mesa. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. No, I want the guitarist to just fucking blow your mind and be like, what is that? Like, what did you do? How does it sound like that? To me, that's what the mix needs to do. Agreed. Absolutely. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. I also want to thank Chandler Hayden, Nick Hanslip, Kevin Newland, and Taylor Borden for asking questions on the forum. Uh, hopefully some of our answers will help you guys out. And if not, let us know. Uh, you can always go to www.joeysturgis.com slash podcast and give us feedback. Tell us what to talk about. Ask us questions. See uh, pictures of us. Um, <laughs> Spew hate. Email us your phone numbers. Maybe we can text. We can text each other back and forth. It could be real cute. Sext. <laughs> um, other than that, uh, thanks for listening and tune in next week. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Savior Custom Drums, quality crafted drums, handmade in Denver, Colorado. Go to SaviorCustomDrums.com to start building your custom drum collection now. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit URMAcademy.com and subscribe today.